This is a Kitty Pod production. The Keep It To Yourself podcast was taped in front of a live studio audience. From Television City in Hollywood. Hey, man! I'm your pre owned I don't fool with no horses, boy. He's a habitual line stepper. Any savage at all, your podcast is crooked. Come on, man. What are we doing out there, man? What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Oh, my good, goodness gracious! Quiet, numbskulls, I'm broadcasting. I demand the hour, demand the power, too sweet to be sour! Plausibly live, but recorded in parts. From the rolling hills of Saratoga County, New York, it's the one, the only, Keep It To Yourself podcast. And now, here's your host, Jason Bullock. I have no idea who he is, but he was dug and dug. All right, that's enough, Morgan. And you're quite welcome. This is episode 138 of the Old Kitty Pod, coming to you on Sunday, the 10th of October, 2021. I apologize for not having an episode for you to listen last week, but we're back. And true Mike and Mike fashion, we're better than ever. Wow, that's debatable. But either way, here's my social media plugs given to you right now. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at keep underscore podcast. That was Twitter's decision, not mine. Don't blame me for it. There's also the Keep It To Yourself Facebook page. You can go have a little look at that. This is the vanity portion of the old kitty pod here. What has happened in the life of one J. Michael Bullet? And there's one highlight that I wanted to tell you about. And it was my trip to visit my dad and his companion in North Am. This is the third since my dog Otis passed away. It's Otis the Wonder Dog, whom you may remember from previous incarnations of this podcast that's a dryer going if you can hear it i apologize for that a little background noise there anyway now we had a little something going on here after earlier this year when we had to put otis the wonder dog down they say well since you don't have a dog to take care of anymore we're not gonna have pets around bullet house or anywhere for a while what we decided to do is well there'll be select weekends that i'd be able to come over and either day trip or overnight it. Now, all three of these trips, like the one I'm about to tell you, have all been overnighters. But it was originally going to be the first day trip I ever took. The Sunday before last, I was all set to go visit them and do this place called the Bridge of Flowers in Shelburne Falls, Mass. But I'll tell it to you later because... Yours truly had a little, uh, shall we say, toilet trouble, and I'll leave it at that. In fact, we wound up having to have my dad come home and fix the problem himself, and there went that. But we made up for it by deciding to do a weekend overnighter. And so the following Saturday, arrived in Northam sometime before noon, had myself a big breakfast because I didn't know when we were going to eat lunch. And we stopped over at this campground where my dance companion's daughter has a campsite. So we arrived at this place called Historic Valley Campground. This is where one of the granddaughters had their birthday party over the summer. 
the last time I was there. And for a while, we decided to keep watch over the two granddaughters while their mom, my companion's daughter, went to you know show a, a potential buyer a house. Oddly enough, she also sold the house next door to where my dad's companion lives. All right, that's enough talk out of that whole deal. So they decided to you know go hang out. Then Dad and I are keeping watch over the campsite while Nancy went. That's my dad's companion. Nancy went over to watch over the two grandkids that were playing at this playground nearby. Took a little walk. I saw them. Just walked by. And there was a bit of a dispute between the two sisters over who wanted to take whose bike. And I'll tell you what, I've never had anything like with what I had with my sister growing up. That is for sure. So soon enough, the mother gets back. That's when things get a bit heated, but things eventually calm down. I think the mother ended up being like, tell them to straighten up and fly right. And then sometime later, all three of us do the high kickoff. We drive out. They had this campsite, what's called the High Rent District, which for a campground in North Adams, Massachusetts, is really saying something. You're sticking your neck out there. And it was a an RV with a flat screen television. Not very big, obviously. Got bunks in there. I haven't had a camper in there for a while. It wasn't an RV, actually, with a camper. I haven't seen one or been in one in many, many years. Not since we lived in Wilton. So with that out the way, we leave the campsite. And we said, all right, Shelburne Falls, here we come. Bridge of Flowers. But first, we stopped at the Wigwam Western Summit. Had a lunch there outdoors. Nice view. You can see all the way down to the city. Got some shopping done. And then we went to the Bridge of Flowers. Now, the story goes, there's this, there's this old trolley bridge that became disused. And years ago, they decided, well, we're going to try and make this a tourist attraction. So as the name would suggest, Volunteers have planted a wide variety of flowers along the length of the bridge. It's about a mile across the Deerfield River. And so we went across it, admired the flowers, trying to get stung by bees and whatnot. And it was an unusually warm day for early October. Climate change will do that to you. Went in some of the shops. Now, I've been a proponent of using CBD. I don't know if I told you this, but we have this CBD place near Bullet House from whence I'm coming to you today in the rolling hills of Saratoga County. Well, this discovery was made on the eastern slope of the Berkshires of western Massachusetts. I went into one of the stores, mostly a women's clothing store and whatnot, so I have really no business being in there, but I heard tell from Nancy that they had CBD products in there, so I'm like, oh, you know what, I'll, you walk across that bridge, not the Bridge of Flowers, I'll be in the shop and go investigate. Turns out, you can drink CBD in liquid form. Or at least have it mixed in with a carbonated beverage. Not soda pop or anything, but there you have it. So $6 later, I said, all right, well, I'm not going to drink it right away. It might get kind of hectic tomorrow for the fall foliage parade. So there you go right there. So I'll save that for tomorrow. Just put her in the fridge when we get back to the house. So we did just that. Had a wonderful time. A great ride there. Stopped at a couple of places along the trail on the way back. And we stopped on the way back at two places that had that Native American vibe to it. Oddly enough, I'm recording this bit 
on the Sunday of Indigenous Peoples Day weekend, or as it's soon to formally be known, Columbus Day weekend. And I mean no offense to any Italian-American listeners out there, including former guests and friends of the show. You know who you are. But anyway, Dan and I got our picture taken in front of this giant Native American outside the store. And speaking of which, it wasn't much to write home about. It did remind me of the teepee in Cherry Valley, New York, back when we took such trips, and hopefully that'll be a thing again real soon. There wasn't much to offer. I did get this little jar of maple sugar, and I was so looking forward to using that. My goodness gracious, that was amazing. Used that the other day when I cooked breakfast, put in some oatmeal. I even made apple crisp, too. My goodness, that was amazing. Sure gave it a different taste, that's for sure. Anyway, we mucked around there for a little bit. Then we stopped at this place called Mohawk Park, and there's a statue called Hail to the Sunrise, and there's this Native American statue, you know, with his arms outstretched. He's got his head cocked back a little bit, and as the title suggests, he's hailing the sunrise, the star of the new day. Well, I had my picture taken in front of it. It's just me having a little pose, and the first one I took was, like, me imitating the statue, which I thought was... Kind of hilarious, but looking back, I may have gotten into some unintentional cultural appropriation or corporal appropriation or corporal punishment or anything like that. Strike out those which do not apply. But anyway, had a great trip back to the house, rested up a little bit, and then I got the surprise of the weekend. We were going out to supper, and we went to this restaurant in Williamstown, and if that weren't enough, we were joined by my Uncle Alan and Aunt Betsy on the night. Now, with this place, whose name I won't mention, hashtag no free ads, you can't just call into this place and make a reservation if you want to go there on the night or the day or whatever. So you arrive, you wait in line for as long as people are coming out there. You got to wait till those people leave and like, all right, get a table. So we just couldn't call and say Bullet Party of Five or my companion's last name, Party of Five. So we had to wait about 20 minutes, maybe a half hour. It was a bit of a clown show. And we even suggested going to another place, but we stood with it. And it, the food was great. It was worth uh, however long we had to wait for a table. I got this thing called the Bourbon Barbecue Burger. It was real good. I thought I was going to get like uh, this Greek thing called Spartan P-S-A-T-I Psati or whatever it's called. In gratitude and maybe in memory of Castleton University or the institution that is soon to formally be that. You know, drink one up the spar. I also want to get some for the bar as a beer while I was waiting. They didn't have long trails there, craft beer selection, so that was off the list. I couldn't do that. So, well, I just went to meat instead of fish. For those of you who are vegan, I apologize for that. Frank Sakari, too. Shout out to you and Heidi. Anyway, great Saturday night. Went back to the house. Took it easy that night. And then Sunday morning... We went to the Fall Foliage Parade, cut through part of downtown North Downs before things got started. And this was a bit of a shit show as well. I packed a pair of shorts because I wasn't sure what the weather was going to be, like 70 degrees out. So I had a long sleeve t-shirt and a pair of shorts. I looked a bit of a chode. But hey, I was going to not let it hand for my enjoyment. However, Mother Nature a couple of times literally rained on the parade. It wasn't anything bad. It wasn't like a monsoon or a downpour or anything like that. I did have to borrow a, an umbrella from my companion's daughter. My dad's companion's daughter, I should say. Whoops. Anywho, it's, we were 
station near this place called the Hot Dog Ranch. They weren't open, but we were right nearby. And this route for the parade, which didn't happen last year because of COVID, came back this year. I've always wanted to go to, so a lot of stuff off the Western Mass Berkshire's Pioneer Valley bucket list getting checked off the list here. And we were parked up right near the start of the parade route, went up the current highway, over the railroad bridge. You know, the railroad goes right underneath. Right turn on to Main Street, downtown, and then another right turn away from the Central Business District. And it was quite the parade there. The float was games, movies, takeout, and it was all the stuff we indulged in while we were in lockdown and during the pandemic. So it was quite the parade, first time seeing it. I had to sit through the rain, but I had a wonderful time. But as for, you know, I was still in a snit for the rebranding of Castleton University, my alma mater, drove past the former North Adams State College, MCLA, couple of occasions, both on the trip to the Bridge of Flowers and on the way home from the parade, they broke it. Uh, they broke that to me. They just broke the topic, I meant to say. But in any event, I had a good time. Oddly enough, on the MCLA bit, Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts, it used to be called North Ham State College, and when I was at the Wigwam Western Summit, I wound up seeing a guy wearing an old North Adams state college sweatshirt while I was in there. I couldn't believe my eyes. It was amazing. But in any event, it was a wonderful weekend. It was a wonderful trip. I wish that both, you know, the parade and also the Bridge of Flowers were separate day trips, but that's just how it is, gang. And speaking of trips, we're going to take one back through time. We're going to resume our Baseball in the 70s series, and we will do that right now. the 1970s, the decade of disco, leisure suits, political scandals, and overall unease. In fact, take out the first two items and you've pretty much got these times. Baseball, much like the world of sports in general, began the decade being insulated from the outside world, only to end it transformed and forced to deal with the changes it had wrought. We'll discuss the effect of these changes, but we'll also throw the spotlight on some lesser talked about events along the way. The night before the morning in America, it's a chronological look at baseball in the 1970s. Picture this. A summer's day at the old ballpark and you're looking to quench your thirst. What's the first thing you think of? Water? Soda pop? How about beer? The John Barleycorn's relationship with our national pastime began when games were broadcast on radio, mainly because breweries were the sponsors of these telecasts and as such, they helped to drive sales both in and well outside of the ballpark, though there was this little thing called Prohibition for almost a decade and a half. However, on an early summer's night in 1974, beer took center stage, and not for good reasons. Nestled on the shores of Lake Erie and split by the Cuyahoga River, the city of Cleveland, Ohio was ravaged by a steep population decline which put it below the million mark during the 1970s. Steel mills and factories had started closing primarily because of foreign competition. 
Those who didn't move to the immediate first-ring suburbs left the state altogether. To make matters worse, the river which bisects the city caught on fire for the umpteenth time in two decades. Adding further to the civic misery were the Cleveland Indians, who were 20 years removed from their last American League pennant and six years further from their last World Series championship. At this time, the soon-to-be gladiators were mired in mediocrity in the American League East. But then again, the same could almost be said for the Texas Rangers, just two years after their move from Washington, D.C. Both teams met at Cleveland Memorial Stadium on the night of June 4, 1974, for an otherwise meaningless game. The Indians, given all the above, were drawing on average over 12000 a home game, so it fell to the front office to cook up a promotion to reverse the trend, at least for one night. Beer would be the answer, but what about amounts and the correct price point? It was ultimately decided that Stroh's beer would be sold in 12-ounce cups at the knockdown price of 10 cents. Just one thin dime. That's all well and good, I suppose, but how much? What say they'll be treated to unlimited cups? Not really. While customers were limited to six cups of purchase, there was actually no limit to how many purchases one could make. That's the ticket. With that established, over 25,000 thirsty patrons, twice the average attendance, showed up to get their drink on. Asshattery and drunken debauchery ensued, and never once did it occur to the Cleveland Brass to beef up security on the night. On top of the alcohol-fueled shenanigans that we'll describe shortly, there was already some bad blood between the two clubs. The previous Wednesday, May 29th, Texas infielder Lenny Randall, in the middle of a breakout season, slid hard into Cleveland second baseman Jack Brohamer. The Tribe responded when pitcher Milt Wilcox threw behind him and then proceeded to get a forearm from Randall for his troubles on a tagout. Randall soon got one in the kisser from John Ellis and a brawl ensued that cleared the benches and resulted in Rangers fans tossing food and beer, foreshadowing, at the Clevelands. Catcher Dave Duncan had to be restrained from pulling a Ron Artest three decades before the Malice in the Palace in the Rangers' 3-0 shutout win. Now, on to the drunken behavior six days later. Those in attendance invaded the field in dribs and drabs as the Rangers raced out to a 5-1 lead. Leron Lee put a line drive into Ferguson Jenkins' breadbasket, to which the crowd shouted, Hit him again, harder, as the future Hall of Famer writhed in pain. A young woman ran out to third base and attempted to plant a kiss on the cheek of another future Cooperstown denizen, umpire Nestor Shylock, who refused her advances. Shylock, a happily married man, was also the crew chief that night. After Tom Greaves' second home run of the night, a streaker slid into second base. He, according to ESPN's Paul Jackson in a 2008 retrospective piece, was, quote, probably getting dirt in places unsuitable for speculation, end quote. I'll leave you to figure out what part of his anatomy he was discussing. During the fifth inning, a father and son duo dropped Trow and Moon, those sitting in the bleachers. And as if all that wasn't enough, along with the suds, a number of the patrons smuggled and smoked marijuana adding to an unreal, uneasy atmosphere to the proceedings. Now, what if I were to tell you that we haven't yet gotten to the point where all holy hell is broken loose? Don't worry, we're headed there. Once the Hoochie Highs wore off in the seventh inning, the Indians had cut the Rangers' lead to 5-3, to 
and those remaining who weren't the most sober and coolest of heads and thus had decided to vacate the premises, decided to celebrate by launching an all-out assault on the Texas bullpen with anything they could get their sloshed hands on. Rocks, tennis balls, batteries. Wait a minute, this isn't Philadelphia last I checked. You name it, even lit firecrackers. Mike Hargrove, a Rangers first baseman who ironically would go on to manage the tribe to its greatest run of success two decades later, had hot dogs and spittle ugh, hurled his way and was nearly clobbered with an empty gallon jug of Thunderbird wine. Not beer, wine. Speaking of alcohol, beer was sold and consumed at such a rate that the person responsible for getting this promotion off the ground, who probably lost his job after all this, instructed those in line to assemble behind a Stroh's beer truck so they could get further buckled that way. The Cleveland-paying customers were further roiled when the Rangers argued a call that originally declared the Ron Lee safe at third base. The Tribe had rallied to even the game at five runs apiece, but with Rusty Torres in scoring position as the winning run at second base, the rally would stop abruptly, and that's when it all popped off. A 19-year-old named Terry Yurkic attempted to swipe the ball cap off of Rangers right fielder Jeff Burrows, who tripped in pursuit of the near thief. Sensing danger, Rangers manager Billy Martin, who had many transgressions during the decade wherever he went, especially in the Bronx, rounded up his players and led the charge onto the field with bats in hand to quell the rioters. However, this small protection force was quickly outnumbered by 200 drunken fans with reinforcements arriving and armed to the teeth with whatever makeshift weapons they could grab. Cleveland manager Ken Aspermonte ordered his charges to respond in kind and defend the house as it were. Tom Hilgendorf, an Indians reliever, became a victim of friendly fire when he was hit with a steel folding chair as though it was WWE 25 years later. Both teams struggled to return to their respective dugouts by this point, and poor Nestor Shylock declared the game a forfeit to Texas. No sooner did he make that decision than he was struck and cut in the head by part of a stadium seat. To add further injury, his hand was cut by a rock toss from the stands. While getting treated for his injuries, Shylock did not mince words when describing the fans that night. And this is all real, folks. Fucking animals. You can't just pull back a pack of animals. When uncontrolled beasts are out there, you gotta do something. I saw two guys with knives and I got hit with a chair, end quote. American League President Lee McPhail further said that with no shadow of a doubt, beer played a part in what went on. No shit, Lee. Aspermonte took the thousand-yard view, quote, It's the society we live in. Nobody seems to care about anything, end quote. Sounds like nowadays, doesn't it? Aspermonte was fired at season's end, which brought about the hiring of Frank Robinson, Major League Baseball's first African-American manager. The riot lasted all of 20 minutes, and it took almost as long to calm the situation down when Cleveland police officers succeeded to restore order. See, security, failure to beef up. In all, nine fans were arrested, and the Indians escorted their opponents back to their team bus to prevent further trouble. In the wake of the riot, the Indians implemented drastic measures in terms of this type of promotion. The remaining three events would see limits of up to four cups for the whole night, with no exceptions. 
However, McPhail put his foot down, suspending promotions in all American League ballparks, quote, pending further review, end quote. A month and a half later, the next 10-cent beer night was held, and it was both a more orderly and more attended affair, with almost 42,000 in the ballpark that night, enjoying a strict limit of two cups per customer. I mentioned Rusty Torres earlier, and it should be known that this was only the second such act of public disorder he witnessed at the ballpark. During the last game of both the 1971 season and the Washington Senators, Torres saw fans run roughshod over Griffith Stadium and start the demolition process way earlier than anyone had anticipated. By decade's end, he also saw disco-hating youngsters tear up Chicago's Comiskey Park during the infamous disco demolition night. Also in attendance, but probably not for too long, was Tim Russert, the future host of the long-running NBC Sunday Morning Gaff Fest, Meet the Press. The Pride of South Buffalo, who passed in 2008, was a student at the Cleveland Marshall College of Law at the time, and as he put it, I had $2 in my pocket. You do the math, end quote. While beer and baseball have enjoyed a mostly pleasant relationship for about the last century or so, the events of June 4, 1974 almost put it at risk. Next time you're at the ballpark, enjoy the suds, but do so responsibly. Hope you enjoyed that little bit there, found that educational and entertaining. We're going to give sports a bit of a break here. And we're going to get to the pod shoutouts before we get to the closing segment. Greetings from Allentown. Peter Winston took a look at an episode of NWA Main Event that aired June 12, 1988. This is where the main event was Arn Anderson versus Lex Luger. You can follow Peter on the Twitter at GF Allentown. Sportscaster Steve Bennett. Oh, we got a heavy hitter here. Sean McDonough, ex of CBS Sports, calling baseball games. Also, Channel 30 out of Boston. That's how I remember him. Did the studio show for the Boston Bruins telecast and also did the Red Sox play-by-play as well during that time. Sean McDonough is going to be helping to call ESPN's NHL broadcast back on the worldwide leader in sports for the first time in over a decade and a half. I grew up with that stuff. And also, Rob Mish stopped by to talk sports betting and how it's zoomed to popularity here in the United States. You can follow that podcast on Twitter at sports underscore casters. The Breaking Down Show, Pete A. Turner. Kind of a quiet week. Michael Kern stopped by to chat with Pete. You can follow that at Break It Down Show. And the Loyal Littles podcast, Chuck and Roxy, had a trifecta of great guests over the last two weeks. Lori Aseo, Ron St. Amant, and George Mallet. We got another newscaster in here. One of the Littles is a retired broadcaster out in Seattle. Just so you know. You can follow that on Twitter at Loyal Littles Pod. As for this little dog and pony show is where you can listen to it. Well, support the ones I just mentioned. But as for this one, we're available on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. If it has rating and review capabilities, give me five stars and a good write-up. That would certainly help me. Thank you in advance. All right, folks, we're going to wrap up this episode with something called One More Thing. Usually this is an opinion piece where I talk about something that I didn't have a chance to get to in the body of the episode, or circle back to something I talked about earlier and bring it all full circle, as I've said circle twice now. However, this week, at least, it's going to be neither of those things, because guess what, gang? More sports talk. If you don't like it, well, I feel you. 
feel free to skip this episode. That is, if you haven't made it this far, you got the hint earlier on. We're going to talk football here, and this is the segment called the Stone Cold Lead Pipe Lock of the Century of the Week. And this is where I take a game from that weekend's college or NFL slate, one or the other, don't do both. And what I do here is I give you my pick and a little analysis as only I can. I don't go completely overboard. It's worth the time. Now, two weeks ago, we had the big Sunday night matchup, Tampa Bay and New England, homecoming for Tom Brady. I took the line, which I think was minus seven when I picked it. Unfortunately, it was a closer game than people thought. It was a defensive struggle more than anything else. Tampa Bay came away with a win, 19-17, so that puts me below the Mendoza line, 500, 2-3 on the year. Now we got to get back up that mountain, and i got a pick that's surely going to put me in that right direction. So without any further ado, let hindrance, delay, etc., here is this week's official play, Maestro, if you please. That music can only mean one thing, ladies and gentlemen. It's Monday Night Football for the second time this year. And if we got a doozy of a game for you, the Buffalo Bills leading the American Football Conference's Eastern Division. I almost said American League East. Got a little baseball on the brain. Anyway, the AFC East leading Buffalo Bills for the first time in a generation and for the first time since my childhood when they were the team in my book. They are traveling down to Music City, USA, Nashville, Tennessee to face the Tennessee Titans. The Buffalo Bills are off to another strong start this year. Josh Allen was quarterback and pretty much the early 21st century version of the Ben but don't break defense. Tennessee Titans? Well, they're a bunch of no-names other than Derrick Henry. You're probably thinking, is Ryan Tannehill still the quarterback? I really don't know. Derrick Henry, maybe Ryan Tannehill. I couldn't pick the rest out if you put him in a police lineup. I put in the Vegas zone. Well, the Ozmakers did. I picked it at four and a half, favoring the Bills. So, take Buffalo with the points. But we all remember what happened back in 2000 in the playoffs when these two teams met. Christie kicks it high and short. Going to be fielded by Lorenzo Neal at the 25. Yeah, Pitches it. it back to Wycheck. He throws it across the field to Dyson. He's got something. 30, He's 40, got something. 50, He's got it. 40, He's got it. 20, 10, He's got it. It's a touchdown Titans. There are no flags on the field. It's a miracle. Tennessee has pulled a miracle. But then again, 20 years later, during the 2020 COVID-ridden regular season, Tennessee also did it again to the Bills. So I'm sensing a revenge factor here from last time out. And that will do it for not only the Stone Cold Lead Pipe Lock of the Century of the Week, but also wrap up this episode of the Keep It To Yourself podcast number 138 in the series. I certainly thank you for listening and never take the audience for granted. I may have the last few weeks with all this sports talk, but... Forgive me any transgressions. I'll talk to you next week or whenever that may be. As always, and above all else, wait for it. Wait for it. Keep smiling. Otis lives. So does Sparty, for now anyway. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
Sit, boo boo, sit. Good dog. <laughs> This has been a Kitty Pod production, produced in Saratoga County, New York, shared with the world.